Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. Now, let's break the mold. Hello, Breaking the Mold fans. This is a voice from the past, Evan Roth, your host. It has been a while since episode 14. The drumbeat over that time has been loud, furious. There's been demonstrations um, that have surpassed the Women's March, the Immigration March, both uh, of the inaugurations, the one that Trump saw and the one that the rest of the world saw, all larger, just demanding episode 15. We've listened to that cry, and we are here today. We, of course, being myself as well as my trusty guest co-host, Brother Dan. Thanks for having me back. We listened. We were on a listening tour. We had um, just fans coming out of the woodwork. Uh, Andrew Katz, specifically, big BTM fan, he said that he has uh, been working out to the shows and has yet to work out in the last seven months because we haven't recorded an episode. Can you just imagine how ripped people are going to be after this episode, working out and listening to this? It's going to be... <laughs> I mean, what it we is. have planned, I feel oh. like it might actually cause people. What is that called in CrossFit? You you must do. CrossFit, yeah, I do. Yeah, right? of course, sure. What's sure. that called when you're like uh, you get to the point of failure in CrossFit? Um, failure. Failure. That's right. Yeah, they're gonna hit that. They're gonna. Yeah, if you look at Andrew Katz, he's you, you don't know him. I've, he sends me pictures as part of his fan club for BTM. He's wasted away. It's sad atrophy. But after this show. It, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Dwayne Johnson doesn't do him justice. Yeah, well, uh, I, I look forward to, the, to always our fan and listener pictures. Um, <laughs> post them up to send any pictures you want to <laughs> add Evan Roth. Dan, our episode today. Uh, we are going to, of course, start with our business topic of the day. We're going to talk about infrastructure, and then we're going to pivot to our interview to talk to Copy Holtzman. Copy is... Tremendous guy. He is the co-founder of Charity Buzz, and before that, he was the co-founder of Webvan, which uh, many of our listeners know is one of the legends of the dot-com era, and we're going to really get into kind of what he's seen over his uh, incredibly successful career. But Dan, let, let's start with uh, with our business block. I don't think anything says welcome back more than infrastructure. Yep, it gets people excited, mm-hmm. and it has the ability, it brings people together. Yeah. Roads and bridges bring people together. It does. When they're not falling into sinkholes, they 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 are together here. Right. Um, well, sometimes when when one collapses and you have to live in a in a shelter together, whole towns come together. It's so it's beautiful. It and is. actually, uh, yeah, what we're gonna what we're talking about is not actually the business aspect of infrastructure. It's the community building Absolutely. aspect. Back to the lack of infrastructure. <laughs> right. Dan, I, I'm, I'm surprised that you were ready to talk about infrastructure, given that uh, you still must be reeling from the pain from our last business topic, where I uh, correctly predicted that Amazon and Wells Fargo entry into the student loan business would fail miserably. Literally five days after I predicted that, it happened, Dan, and you were taking the other side of it, and I'm sorry for your pain. I think that, first of all, I'm still long on this bet. I think that you will see what Amazon has consistently done is learn about a market, figure out how things work, and then they come back and attack it. So I don't think it's the last we're going to hear of tech companies moving hardcore into banking or the banking changes so much that you can't distinguish between what is 
tech and and what is traditional mm. banking. That's what's going to happen. So you're you're saying I was early. You're early. You're not saying you were wrong. That, it's absolutely. just a timing. It's just a timing issue. It's I've just never been mad. Wrong. Just just very early. <laughs> All right, let's talk about infrastructure spending. I, I feel like, Dan, we do talk a fair amount about sort of what is government's role in common private sector, free markets, where does government play its role? And there's never a bigger role that they fill than, you know, our water systems, bridges, dams, uh, roads. And and now with a, a a possible proposal on the table of a trillion dollars being spent on infrastructure. I, I worry that the money will not be spent well. I know, call me a cynic, call me a cynic about government and graph. I, I don't think that it'll be spent well, and I would uh, do two things. One, encourage that and, and postulate that there could be a lot more good done if this were uh, a more of a private-public partnership, and you really had kind of corporate interests be the ones who were responsible for uh, identifying what projects needed to be uh, done and then to actually complete those. And the second issue would be I, I don't see how a trillion dollars, uh, if it's really just about putting people to work, uh, and I don't see a trillion dollars worth of projects that need to get done. And I, I, I worry that we're just inflating the economy and we're doing it in an inefficient way through government. First of all, I just want to commend you on your use of the word postulate. Thank you. That really, like, that raised the grade level of this entire podcast. We're going to have to <laughs> uh, recommend this to different, a different type of people now because of that. So first, first grade to fifth grade now? <laughs> That's right. Dang, I, I challenge you to, to not, we're not going to talk about infrastructure. We're going to talk about, can you work in a word even more impressive than postulate? I'm going to work on it. I will, I will say that uh, I think that I, I wish that we could separate the two, um, the two aims here. One is putting people to work. And the other is rebuilding yeah. infrastructure. Those feel like two very different things to me. If you can accomplish both, that's great. But the infrastructure spending that needs to be done, I, th I would hope that the spending would happen um, based on priorities rather than based on what could actually employ the most people. Mm -hmm. And I am not sure that I would – in fact, I would say I would disagree with your idea that this has to be a, a government um, and business uh, enterprise, that they would team up together on it. But I do agree that the um, that this has to be done from a bottoms-up level. That mm -hmm. this isn't a government down level. This isn't the idea of putting a new people mover uh, uh, train in Detroit. That if you can find out from the bottoms up where are what what the demand is, what do you notice in your community that's failing? What do you notice in your city that's failing? What do you notice at the state level? I think mm -hmm. this has to. I think the people know what doesn't work in their neighborhoods, in their cities as they travel across the state. And um, what's not working with getting broadband to their houses, and the the first step is just to understand where the pain points are, and then you build the infrastructure on top of that. Now the downside of that is you're not going to get the big visionary, you know, Erie Canal like bets right. by by doing that. But you will. F there there's so much low hanging fruit. There's so much that needs to be fixed already. And I saw some number that said that it would cost 65 billion dollars to maintain the our current highways and bridges. That just fixing. The things first seems like the biggest priority. Yeah, I, I think that there was more. So this isn't the first time that infrastructure spending's been on the table. You know, think back to '09. You're coming out of the financial crisis, sure. and there was a stimulus bill that was um, ended up being 787 billion dollars spread out over three years, which is largely credited towards getting the economy back on track. So just for perspective, we're talking about a trillion dollars being spent just on infrastructure at a time where we've had seven years worth of growth. So you're talking about, you know, it's a real, it's going to be inflationary. 
And you're also talking about a time when people are back at work, you know, whether they're underemployed or not. Certainly there's statistics that say that they were. But I don't feel I, I, I don't think there's any aspect of this that's like that's great for for jobs. Because I just don't see the out of work carpenter suddenly, you know, in you know, being good at building roads. Like yeah. they just don't have that you know, skill set, and they don't have that flexibility in their 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 job. Or if they do, because you're just hiring anybody that can fog a mirror, no, exactly. then you're you're overpaying for for talent. That's even more wasteful. This is in the 1940s where you're using pickaxes and machinery that you can quickly train people up on. There are major advances that have gone on in how you build any kind of infrastructure. <laughs> right. These take real advanced skills to be able to pull off. Um, and they also take fewer people. I think that when, when people imagine what it was like during the coming out of the yeah. Great Depression with massive spending uh, and and everything they got built, that was you don't need that many people anymore to do that sort of work. The other part is, let's say we do put people, let's say this does actually employ huge numbers of people or takes them out of being underemployed and puts them into into better employment. It's not a very sustainable career path that we're putting them on. Right. At some point, that money runs out. Um, and which these are not back, the jobs of the future. Right. And it, right. And it's back to, you know, politics, which is fulfilling campaign promises, which is to put people to work, which in the short term, you know, might do that. But if you look at like Japan, for example, Japan's been on a 15 year, you know, spending spree on infrastructure. They've spent six trillion dollars in 15 years and there's paved paved roads everywhere, random farmland, rural areas. The Japanese people are could not be more upset the fact that they've, you know, their roads are now in the middle of nowhere. And there's no, there, there's, there's, the economy is not any better than it was before that. Absolutely. You look at that chart and it is a, it is a uh, up into the right chart that shows you spending. Spending and <laughs> GDP growth flat. flatline. It's really crazy. So I don't know why we'd be any different for that. So, and so, and then back to your other point, which is like, well, you know, let the states decide or everybody needs to agree on you know what you know what 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 is the most you know important project and i i i think that's a level of optimism that people can just come to agreement in terms on that i think that it's it, it, there will be always an element of well what does it do to help me get reelected what does it do yeah. to help me you know be a big shot in my community those are what's going to get you know are going to get funded first, not the ones that if you actually had, you know, private companies get in there and decide what makes the most sense from a bottom line standpoint, you know. So you explain that to me. When you say, you, when you talk about government, corporate tie-ups to, to invest Public, in infrastructure, partnerships, how, how would yeah. you imagine that? I would imagine that there would be a, uh, a coalition of, uh, of, of people from the American Society of Civil Engineers five of them would gather with five members of construction companies. You know, if you're in New York, you do Judd Lau, you know, you do, you know, these construction companies that have known to be worked effectively with municipalities. And you combine the work of the American Society of Civil Engineers to say, here's what's most broken with the five CEOs of these construction companies to say, these are the ones that we'd actually be willing to fund because we'll back them with our people. They won't be union workers. They're going to be our workers. They're going to be ones who we are already know we can rely on to get the job done, and then we'll be accountable for that. Where the money comes from, it'll come from, 
you know, there's, you know, probably more detail than our listeners sure. know, but where there's an 18.3 cent gas tax that is all used uh, by the federal government for infrastructure spending. You could carve off half of that, give it to the states and give it to the cities that could help fund a project like that. But in the end, the, the there would be a, you know, there would be some accountability ownership that would be taken by private sector companies to actually build this and make them work. Hmm. And right. and you're sold, and <laughs> and you're you're now signing up for that job. Which side, the civil engineer side or the? Uh... First of all, it sounds like a very exciting meeting. <laughs> so I would just want to be there, recording the whole thing and uh, eating popcorn and watching it. Uh, well, we'll have to agree to disagree about this one because I'm always right. <laughs> uh, Dan and I will be right back with our special guest, Copy Holtzman, and don't forget to. Send us your feedback, comments, pictures at Roth Evan on Twitter. If anyone has the podcast, either the logo or each episode tattooed on your body, send us pictures of that. Send us more pictures of that, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> Keep sending us those pictures. We love seeing those. We'll be right back. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. And welcome back to Breaking the Mold. Dan and I are joined in the studio by Copy Holtzman. Copy's career path is not easy to describe. It's It's been a big pendulum. It swung from the traditional uh, business path, starting with a Wharton degree, uh, moved on to retail at Macy's, and then on to the wild west of the dot-com era of the 90s and early 2000s, where Copy was a co-founder of Webvan. Uh, from there, went to a more virtuous step towards the creation and the incredible growth of Charity Buzz. Charity Buzz, for those that do not know, raises money for charities through online auctions. Those auctions are with celebrities and, and brands and have, have really fulfilled what Copy set out to do, which has merged the world of pop culture and philanthropy. And now what's next is on to meeting all of our caffeine addiction by opening a new concept in coffee shops that's targeting millennials called Boris and Horton. So long list of incredible successes uh copy we're really thrilled to have you here thanks it's nice to be here evan and dan thank you for having me thanks so we thought we'd start at the beginning you know copy just give us a, a sense of what it was like to you know be to grow up who were your influences your role models who kind of set you along this this path okay thank you um i am older than probably most of your uh, listeners. Um, I 14. Grew up... <laughs> <laughs> 14 listeners? Yeah. That's how old they are. <laughs> Both. Age, age and number. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I grew up in western Pennsylvania in a coal mining town called Altoona and went to college in Philly and from there realized I didn't want to move back to western Pennsylvania and I moved to New York after college and at that time in the 70s people went to work for large corporations because there was no internet and no startups and that wasn't what you did. So I spent my first you know, 20 years or so in corporate America, starting off as an assistant buyer and then a buyer and it was focused towards consumers um, in fashion at that time and brick and mortar retail and started off as a buyer, then got into product development. My last job at 
Macy's was running their overseas offices, developing the products that they sold under their private label. Um, and then, as now, my focus was trying to give people what they want in kind of a unique and upscale way. Um, it was obviously pre-internet, and yeah. I realized probably maybe in the mid-90s when the internet started that I was fascinated by it. So I started doing some internet work more of as a hobby and then um, ended up leaving and starting with Lewis Borders, who had sold Borders Books, an internet company that originally we were going to do a combination of small little specialty stores and then online, and we ditched the small little specialty stores and um, sort of rode the wave of the dot-com enthusiasm where at that time everyone thought retail stores are dead, everything's going to be um, online. Clearly, I know now that that isn't the case, and I have learned that consumer um, patterns never go from black to white. They evolve. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to evolve with them. But at that time, the whole idea was no one's ever going to shop ever and going to buy online. And we started a company, Webvan, our first day of going public. We had a market cap of $9 billion, which as a grocery store was... Yeah, let me show back up. Yeah. You know, to define the kind of the average age of, you know, our listeners... Anyone who uh, was buying groceries in the late 90s knew of Webvan. Webvan was the original Fresh Direct, and it was uh, world domination, just grab market share, and so you couldn't turn to your right or your left if you were in any urban destination without seeing something related to buying your groceries online at Webvan, and you would be able to do it within a 30-minute window. Looking back, we must have been on drugs for realizing that we didn't have to focus on the consumer, so we happened to be at the right place at the right time. We had all the metrics that Wall Street was looking at that we were addressing the last mile solution, so we wanted to get what consumers wanted in their house organized within, as you mentioned, a 30-minute window. So it was sort of like everything you could get at Walmart. Um, and it's interesting looking back at some of the data we put together. At that time, we were using like, all right, you don't need to go to Blockbuster and get your tape. We'll deliver it to you. Or you don't need to go to the Photoshop and get your um, pictures developed. We'll deliver it to you. So it's actually funny how things change since obviously no one goes to photo deliverers and blockbusters, a thing of the past. But the whole idea was, and our trucks even evoked that DNA of like a milk delivery person or, um, you know, Charlie Chips, the pretzel guy, was kind of a combination of old and new. And even the name was very simple, um, ordering from the web, delivering in a van. So it was kind of evoking modern and old. So we had $50 million per city times 26 cities, and the whole idea was turn retail on its um, head and give people what they want, and we go to you. We also tried to take advantage, again, it was the late 90s, so at that time we were pretty wild that there was, I think, 60% internet usage, which you know now it's obviously 99.9%, but 60% was pretty high, so we tried to address working moms that um, we're going to make sure that the peaches are fresh and they don't have to go to the store and they're working and we'll handpick them and wrap them and deliver to them. We'll do home meal replacement that's just as delicious as making it for you. So the reality, it all sounded great. We raised lots of money. We were building lots of warehouses, but you can't do all of that and focus on customer service and customers at the same time. So the customers, and in retrospect, it seems so obvious. So... Um, what I've learned 
you know, that was sort of a detour because so much money was shown at us. But what I realized then and realize now is the customer is the most important thing. It's much better, like you referenced Fresh Direct. Fresh Direct started in New York. They didn't have billions and billions of dollars. What they had was one market that they made sure that every peach that was delivered was fresh, every milk bottle that was delivered was you know current in terms of the dating and all that other stuff. And it was a smaller business. They focused on customer service. The dot-com um, sort of um, hysteria where so much money was thrown. Like, we had so much money thrown at us that the whole idea was the 1% of China. If you get 1% of all the consumers, your company's going to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So, like, my $9 billion market cap on day one, I was on a run rate of shipping... I was shipping less than one stop and shop store and had a market cap greater than Kroger's stop and shop and every supermarket chain. And literally, we were doing no business. Yeah, but I, no I, one cared. Right. I went back and looked. The, the web van's revenues on the day it went public were $400,000 at a $9 billion valuation, losing $50 million. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> Poppy, when you look so back we didn't share, we, um, we had a corporate thing. Like, I did all these interviews, and we had a corporate thing, and we don't share our numbers. We didn't share our numbers because we were embarrassed. Like, like <laughs> we weren't shipping anything. Right. Like, my local supermarket on the corner did more than our whole corporation. While you were building it, were you thinking that you were out ahead of your skis, that you had gone too far, or was there a belief that this was all going to work? Um, I would say... In retrospect, so much money was being thrown at us. Like when you did the roadshow, I remember like we would allocate how much money was coming from different people. So like Goldman Sachs wanted to give us hundred million. You know, we allocated hundred million dollars. So we did the round. They wanted to give us two fifty. It's like no, you're not giving us two fifty if you don't take the hundred hundred million. We're not going to have you. It's like okay, we'll take a hundred. We want another hundred fifty. So if you have so much money being thrown at you, before long, you kind of believe your own. Yeah. Hype, yep. you know, so, um, but then I also know, and that's why it's really important, no matter how big or how small your business is, whether you're doing 100,000 or 100 million, you need to focus on your customers. So um, if you focus on your customers and forget about the money, that will come later, and um, we lost sight of that. So it's just sort of one of those things that one of those times and places, you know, and there's all these studies, you know, the in the you know, 1600s in Holland, the um, hyper enthusiasm over tulips and bulbs and the prices shot up. So there's lots of times in history when that happens. The late 90s in Silicon Valley, too much money was thrown after ideas. But customers, you know, what I've learned, the lesson I learned, you know, which I learned at Charity Buzz and hopefully at Boris and Horton going forward, if you give consumers what you want and every single consumer is important and you focus on that person, forget about all the financials in terms of making billions of dollars, just focus on your consumer and make sure you give them great customer service. So let, let's talk about what kind of state of mind you were in as the dot-com, you know, crash occurred. And you're, you know, now looking at, you know, a vastly different situation than you had thought you would be in. And what what did you do besides just sit under the covers and cry? Um, well, I have to say there's this... Um, uh, 
summit called um, Summit Series, where it's all these tech developers, and they invite you to speak, and they asked me to come and speak, and I thought, oh, this is really good. They think I'm really smart. And then I was one of the opening, opening night people, and they had a picture of me and the word failure underneath it. Wow. So the whole idea then, which at the time it was a little deflating, but the whole idea there was to take risk and take changes, mm -hmm. and it's good to do that. So I realized in retrospect that it's good to take um, risk and try changes, but certainly at the time, I didn't feel good about it. Um, you know, it's you know it's, um, but you learn from that, and I have learned that a it's good to be humble, b it's good to um, think small. P and Ls are really important. Like, but at the time, you know, we had a board and a venture group that we had plenty of money. Time was the essence. Right. So even building out our test kitchen as an example, the test kitchen cost like say $10 million to build out where we're testing all of our recipes. Um, but my board was pushing me like, what if you work 24 hours building it out? What if you hire extra cooks? What if you hire extra chefs? And instead of building out an X number of months, you build out half of that. So we did that, you know, but at that time it made sense. In retrospect, it obviously is very silly. Do you remember the point where it started to feel, you started to notice the change where you said, was it just, was it was it when the crash actually happened or was it before then? We happened to go that? public right before the crash. Right. So our stock opened at 32 and it went down from there. So clearly when personally, you know, like you look at the company, but you look at yourselves like, hmm. I lost $100 million today. That's not a good day. Right. So yeah. um, that's. That's you know. like Danny today. <laughs> oh, God. I haven't, I haven't, my, my phone's on airplane uh, <laughs> mode. I haven't looked. Man, I'm in trouble. Um, but yeah, clearly it was downhill from when we opened. And um, when we closed, we had $800 million in cash. So, um, but we couldn't succeed because I think we had four cities open. So 22 cities in various stages of construction with obligations. So like the Bronx, we just closed a deal to build a distribution center for 50-some million dollars in the Bronx, signed the deal. They're not going to say, okay, we'll let you out of it. Like right. you're obligated to it. And we had the cash, so it just wasn't a viable thing. Plus with venture guys, like they're on to the next thing. So our guys who are wonderful, they you know did eBay Yahoo, Google, like all these other folks, like you know, it didn't work. Okay, next. next yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's not like you know, it's not like it's a lifetime commitment, but you can learn from that. Like I have learned, life is a, like I'm super excited about the next venture. Like you know, you try things. Some work and some don't. Mm -hmm. That's so, okay. So you were on to trying Charity Buzz. Talk to us about. Yeah, so that. what happened there was, um, I certainly didn't feel great about myself for like you know like you know you a company like that goes out of business um i spent a lot of time with um my wonderful um children and you know you know who were teenagers then and you know was at home and started doing charity work and then went to um you know i figured you know i'd take some time off from doing business and just try to give back and do charity work so i was in an event for the clinton library um, you know, in Westport, Connecticut, where I live, one of my neighbors had it, and President Clinton and Chevy Chase happened to be at the event. So the host of the party asked me if I had a way that I could raise money using my internet experience, because he knew of my um, exposure in starting webman with President Clinton and Chevy Chase are standing right there. And so I said, um, why don't we offer an experience, like hang out with the president and the king of comedy and auction it off? So they both spontaneously said, okay, we'll do that. 
So that was, I'd like to say it was very strategic, but it wasn't. It was more spontaneous idea because I did know from the internet that you can reach a broader audience and just the folks right at, you know, uh, an event or um, one particular location, you can obviously target and reach a much broader audience. So that was my first auction experience in both of those you know, wonderful folks, President Clinton and Chevy Chase, reached out to some of their friends. So our first auction that we had, Chevy reached out to a couple of other friends, Bill Murray, and we did a Caddyshack golf experience, President Clinton, you know, for the Clinton Library, and then subsequently for the um, Clinton Foundation. We did other experiences with many friends. Um, and from that, we realized that experiences, meeting someone, is really unique and obviously there's lots of data and there's lots of relevance right now and particularly with the millennials they'd rather have an experience that's unique than you know buy something you know another watch another car or yeah. whatever mm -hmm. so after the first couple of years and at first it was just a hobby it was just you know sort of something to do did one at a time then it actually grew it started off in my house with one person in one bedroom another person in another bedroom and then you know got a small office and then you know got a bigger office and then quickly well, not quickly after the first couple of years, realized that there was a business. And one thing I do know, whether it's retail that I did at Macy's or online at Webband or Charity Buzz or what I'm going to do for Boris and Horton, is you have to be authentic and you have to believe in what you're going to do. And I did truly want to raise the money for charity and did truly want to combine um, pulp culture and interesting things like you know, like I wake up in the morning and I unabashedly read the New York Post every morning. Like, like you know, like I could say that I don't, but I know. I like to see what's going on. I like to be relevant in terms of what's in the news cycle. So the experiences and the opportunities we had fulfilling people's dreams were indicative of what was in the news cycle. So we just take a step back and explain how that business works. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the idea of auctioning off ex uh, experiences, but... Turning that into a business is a whole nother matter. Um, so the whole premise there was, again, using the internet and the whole evolution going from brick and mortar to internet is obviously charities do events in a room. So whether it's the Waldorf in New York City or the Beverly Hilton in LA or you know whatever event in London, you do an event, it's X number of people, they buy tables. Oftentimes they have an auction there where you get to bid on a unique experience or a nice watch or a car or whatever, it's confined to 200 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, whatever in that um, event. The premise of Charity Buzz is ripping open the wall so it's not just those folks in the room, but it's a whole global audience. As the business evolved over the last decade, with increasing frequency, probably um, Facebook was probably the best way where you can specifically target demographics and economics groups based on interest in down to a particular area, you can target people and you can expose people so it's not just confined to those folks in a room. Two things I'm the proudest of from Charity Buzz is one, we raised all that money for charity and you can obviously see how much it was and the actual amount, but more importantly, for charities giving fresh blood to them. And then we started doing entrepreneur auctions. And the entrepreneur auctions were very simple. It's basically exposing folks to business leaders. Someone had the opportunity and she 
probably in retrospect, it wasn't the smartest thing. She spent her last 25 grand to pitch an idea to Lori Grenier. She won it at auction. Meanwhile, the business took off and she's made millions of dollars. So, I mean, had it not, it probably wouldn't have been so good. But, <laughs> but, um, but we have lots of examples. We had someone who met um, Anna Wintour from Singapore and he wanted exposure. I figured, I don't know how to meet Anna Wintour, but he spent 50 grand, met her, pitched her, and, she, and um, Vogue became a supporter of Singapore Fashion Week just through this exposure. Yeah. So there's lots and lots of stories so like let, that. Let, but you you talk about it so passionately. I mean, you you know this this is something that I think we, you'd be surprised listening to you that you've now sold this business. What I do know is it's good to learn from what you've done and evolve. Mm -hmm. So that was really fun. The last part of it was sweepstakes, which became um, part of the business under a separate label, Prizo, and we were really successful. So love both of those ideas, but. Both of them were limited in terms of the scalability because they're very unique. They were one-off. So just by definition, an auction of sweepstakes is only one of them. Yeah. So what our new model is going to do, which is super excited, and I'm doing it with my wonderful daughter, Logan, um, who was also a Charity Buzz and managed major accounts at Charity Buzz, is we're going to gear towards millennials, folks in their you know 20s and 30s, and we're going to... Um, review what's going on in the landscape today. What's going on in the landscape today is just like, you know, which I learned from Webvan, you're not, like, brick and mortar is gonna stay. It's not gonna go away, it's gonna change. Internet's gonna stay, it's not gonna go away, it's gonna change. But what we can do is people, if they go to a brick and mortar location, they want it to be an experience. If they're buying a simple shirt, they can do it online. But a coffee shop is probably the best example of a community space and an upskill coffee bar in an urban area where you can provide that wonderful experience and also bring your pet, bring your dog. So it's basically, you know, you're busy in an urban location, you're walking your dog. You can go in and have a pet-friendly coffee shop experience where we're having a reason for you to go to a brick-and-mortar location and you can buy wonderful product and you can support animal rescue and other um, wonderful causes. Um, and our online experience will support what we're doing in these wonderful brick-and-mortar locations. So we're sort of evolving and dealing with what the reality in both retail and um, consumer behavior is today. So how at, when, when you are targeting a market that's of a very different age than, than you are. And you clearly put a lot of trust and reliance on Logan, on your daughter, to kind of share her and have her experience. And have her smack me around. So I am aware of what we need to do to go after that. But you've also got 20 plus years of real experience that you, you can walk us through what happened with Webvan. You can walk us through what happened with Charity. Where does that meet where you tell Logan that's wrong? That might be, that's just, that, that violates basic consumer retail I principles. Think, I think I am self-aware in my age of my strengths and weaknesses, and Logan and I have a great um, communication ability such that she has areas that she's much, much stronger on, and I have areas that I'm much, much stronger on. So like right now, putting together the finances and sort of who's gonna be involved and the real estate and some of that others, I have experience doing that based on my retail and financial background. I don't have any experience or I'm an out 
outlier looking in in terms of social media. Sure, like you know, I post on Facebook like the other middle aged guy, but it's not innate to me. So in terms of having people come in with their pets and having a photo booth that then you can take the photo and share it on Instagram, and maybe the dog collar that the pet is wearing. Um, that we sell can be shared and lots of people see it. That's her um, domain because that's how she lives and breathes. So I'm well aware of that and accept that and defer to her on that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the product development, like um, we're going to have unique products. We're going to use the, you know, everyone says their assortments should be curated or is are going to be curated also. They'll be unique, but it's going to be geared more towards folks her age, mm-hmm. you know, rather than folks my age. So you, the taste level's obviously the same between the both of us, and we see eye to eye on what we want to have in our assortment, but the experience is more an experience that she and her peer group use rather than I and my peer group. And the other thing is, Maybe I'm immature. I like hanging out with people in their <laughs> 20s and 30s also. And the need for any business comes up based on um, a void. So just like I mentioned when I met President Clinton and Chevy Chase and p- the potential to auction off an experience outside a closed room and there was a need there and a void there and we addressed it. Um, Logan and I were out um, at a coffee shop this summer with our dogs and couldn't bring them in. We had to lock them up outside. So that you know, so obviously we rushed to get our coffee. Someone was watching them. We were uncomfortable. They had great product in the store. We started talking to someone. A need existed. So we're trying to address a particular need and go after a surging market that will respond to that need. Uh, unlike though, with Webfam, where you were going after a worldwide market, even with Charity Buzz, where you were reaching the world, this is this one is very much constrained by where you can put a coffee shop. And the idea is to go after people with dogs. I mean, this is a, you, I assume you have a, a certain breakdown in what percent of people you, you expect to go there who are who are with their dogs and who aren't. Right, yeah, who aren't I, mean, you, I mean, you clearly, um, need, you don't need a dog to come in, but you clearly, if you don't like dogs, you're not gonna come into our spot. Yeah. Yes, you know. So, um, But what we're going to do is we know, and again, a lot of the connections and a lot of the celebrities and organizations that we dealt with at Charity Buzz, we have those relationships where we raise lots of money for them, lots of awareness with them. We're going to partner with a lot of those folks, and we really want it to be a true community space. So whether we do um, a place for birthday parties, you have... 10-year-old girls and we have lots of you know cute little dogs that come in from the local rescue place and there's a birthday party and we adopt a couple of those pets a it's a great place to have a birthday party b we serve a need and provide long-term homes for these wonderful animals that need to be rescued or in the evening if we do something for the young leaders organization for whether it's Planned Parenthood or the ACLU or you know one other organization we provide a local place for them to meet and to have coffee and you know evening will be wine and beer and they'll buy some of our products. So we're serving a need and we truly wanna be part of the community. That being said, we will have these anchors first in New York and LA, but we're going to be an online destination and the buzz that we create from these locations. So if it's an animal rescue event and we have a great dog call that we do and then we promote it online, there'll be lots of products that we'll be selling, you know, on a, you know, at least a national basis to begin with, if not a global basis. So we very much want to be an online business, but we know we need to have the local presence and do well in these coffee shops first. 
Yeah, although I, I have to say that Dan, I, I, the grandeur is smaller, right? If you take it from Web Van to Charity Buzz, and you're going from you know the size of Web Van and the movement and the kind of the way it occupied everybody's attention during that time nationally. But, but that wasn't good. See, when our original idea, like our original name. When Lewis and I started it, our original name was Oasis. So we originally were gonna have these little shops that we had a kiosk in the back where you can order online and we'd have great product and interesting food and we'd also have an online um, presence. Had we stayed like that, probably similar to Fresh Direct and grown a lot slower, it'd probably be a several billion dollar company now. Yeah. We just got the steroids and cranked it up too high, too fast, too soon. So the lesson I learned is like- Work under constraints. Yeah, work under constraints. Same thing with Terry was The first five years, the first couple of years I was doing it out of my house. We were shipping out of my basement. Mm -hmm. You know, so it wasn't like it was this high tech operation, <laughs> um, you know, um, but had, um, I think it's okay to think, like love every one of your customers, think a little more realistically, make sure like the first season i'd love nothing more than there's lines outside the door we can't you know address everyone's need everyone comes in everyone has a great experience you know if we're selling art on the wall like it sells out if we have a line of dog collars that are terrific we sell all of them like like let, let's do that and then chase it rather than thinking that it has to be a 10 billion dollar business right Okay, we'll copy. Uh, all of our listeners out there, there's a Boris and Horton coming near you. Come visit, bring your dog, drink a lot of coffee, <laughs> buy dog collars, mostly for Dan. Uh, <laughs> and we'll be, uh, and we'll be uh, uh, watching. Hopefully you'll come back one time on Breaking the Mode. Tell us what's next, because there never seems to be an end. Are you going to make hamster collars? Because I have four, <laughs> and they can really use them. Big demand for I them. think that's a great idea that I have to confess we hadn't thought of. So thank you for presenting uh -huh. it. Market opportunity. Yeah. Thank you, Copy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Breaking the Mold wants your feedback. Please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. Welcome back, Breaking the Mold. Dan, interesting journey there with Copy Holtzman. He's, he's, he's seen a lot. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the interesting to go from pure retail just immediately into webcam. Oh, and, um, and, you know, everyone knows it's, that was the, that's the poster child of internet um, Excess. Yeah, that's what Ex people, yeah. when, when they're like, oh, the, the, it was pets.com and Webvan. Those are the two. And then I thought it was interesting he brought up the, the tulip bulb, you yeah. know, like, you know, phenomenon. Because literally in like 450-year difference between the two, that was the next total craze. Like exactly. it really was at that level of frenzy. And then you look at the scale of Webvan and the craziness. And then obviously he's done, did charity buzz in between. But the new, um, the, the focus on dog-friendly coffee shops. Uh, Couldn't you see that get, coming. You can't get that any further from Webvan. It is exactly the opposite. It is not spread everywhere fast, go big, $9 billion. This is small, focus on the customer, focus on one customer yeah. need, yeah. the customer with the dog. Uh, have a have a retail and an online experience. I mean, it is just the you wouldn't think it's the same guy. No, but I think both. he. But Copy described it well, which was this. This is where his. You know, this is where he sees. You know, his ability to relate to consumers, right? right? And 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 Webvan, you know, or even Charity Buzz. There's 
a separation, a physical separation that you get that you don't, there's nothing more than sitting around in a coffee shop, talking politics with your dog at your footsteps, you know, at your foot, just, you know, lapping, you know, water. That's a pretty personal, intimate, and hard to see scalable business quite the way that a online enterprise would be. Well, I also think if you look at Poppy's background, my guess is that this is just where it starts and it evolves into something yeah. else. And Charity Buzz, certainly the same way. I think if he had described it to us in its first few months. It wouldn't look like anything it like, like it did at the you're end. You're doing an auction <laughs> for, you know, they're famous people and you get to bid on it. Sounds exactly right. like a charity. Well, it does. It does. But I also, like, he described it as just kind of spontaneous, right? Yeah. Like, oh, all of a sudden I got this idea because I was at an event and Chevy Chase was there and Bill Clinton was there. But I don't think people who've had the kind of success and experience that copy has, it's just that spontaneous. It might be an instinct, and that instinct is subconscious, but there's some pattern recognition that you see underneath the surface, which is, this is going to turn into something bigger than just me auctioning lunch off with Chevy Chase. Yep. Dan, we'll be back very soon, Dan. We'll be back very soon. Just Commitment. keep it refreshed, everyone. It's coming. It is coming. This was episode 15, Breaking the Mold. You sure about that? Send us your feedback. It's ish. 15-ish. Send us your feedback. Twitter, BTM show at iCloud.com, at uh, Roth Evan. Dan, your Twitter handle? Is uh, Dan Roth. Clever. Thank you. Clever. We'll be back. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at iCloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at Mixopolis in New York City.